Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us today in the StoryCraft Cafe. We've got some great shows for you this week. Today, we're going to hear from Brad Taylor, who is a multiple, uh, I think, 16-time New York Times bestselling author. And we're going to talk about thrillers that go at a breakneck pace. And Brad is, uh, he's one of the best at this. So thanks for listening. We'll be back later this week with another one as Rhett Bruno joins us later this week to talk about the future of science fiction. And thank you for joining us today live in the StoryCraft Cafe. Um, I am Hank Garner, your host as always. And today I have a very special guest joining us, Brad Taylor, who has a brand new book that just came out last week. It's called The Devil's Ransom. What a fantastic book this is. Um, Brad, I love every one of your books and look forward to this time of year when a new Brad Taylor thriller comes out and uh excited to have you welcome thank you thank you for having me absolutely um brad i've got a uh a kind of a fun question that i've been asking uh folks lately and i'd like to uh pose it to you in your writing career or in your writing life um is there a piece of advice that someone has given you um maybe a really great piece of advice that you refer back to from time to time and you're thankful to have received from someone or maybe it's a really horrible piece of advice that you're so glad you didn't take or wish you would not have taken uh, you mean as far as writing or yeah, advice in general <laughs> yeah i have lots of advice all around but you know writing or you know your creative life something in that yeah i think the best piece of advice i've gotten was uh i mean i didn't think i'd have one book published much less this is my 17th book Right. And when you write in a series, then things, you know, time goes on. And so uh, uh, the very first book I wrote, I put down Pike and Jennifer's ages and, you know, descriptions and that kind of stuff. And then as time went on, I was like, you know, I can't do this forever. And so um, I talked to Robert Crace, who does the Elvis Cole yeah. series. And Elvis Cole was, uh, I mean, he was a Vietnam vet. And it, right. technically, he'd be solving crimes in a wheelchair right now. <laughs> and so... I asked him, you know, what did you do about that? Because he had the same issue. And he said, uh, I decided to make Elvis and, and Joe Pike too. I decided to make Elvis uh, Superman. He never ages. I never mentioned his age ever again. And that's what I'm going to do. And so I heard that and I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do then. So <laughs> I've never mentioned Pike and Jennifer's age ever again. Uh, that's fantastic. You know, um, the the Longmire mysteries uh, kind of bumped into that a little bit. In, in the books, Walt... Uh, and and Henry were buddies in the Vietnam War, and then when they when Netflix made the TV series, uh, I think they had to kind of move that forward. And there yeah. were, um, you know, Gulf War. Um, yeah, that happens to a lot of movies. Like Shooter, that yeah. was a, a point of impact, and that guy was, you know, a Vietnam War sniper, and 
when they made with Mark Wahlberg, he was something else. <laughs> right. Well, anytime Mark Wahlberg shows up, you know, it's usually something else. But um, The Devil's Ransom, you you mentioned this was the 17th uh, novel, and uh, 16 of those 17 have landed on the New York Times bestseller list, haven't they? They have. That's Amazingly enough. Yeah, that's that's an incredible accomplishment. Do you ever look back um, at, you know, those early days when you're beginning your career and, you know, think, wow, how did I how did I wind up here? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, no one's more amazed than I am. I, I mean, you, I, I didn't know anything about the publishing industry when I started publishing. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until I was probably four books in, I realized just how incredibly hard it was to get published, period, much yeah. less make the list. Um, so, I mean, I was just kind of numb to it all cause I didn't, I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, Pike Logan, who, uh, is the, uh, protagonist in, in your books and, uh, and, and Jennifer, uh, for those that are not familiar, who is Pike and, and where did this character come from? Uh, he's a, uh, um, a counter-terrorist guy. He's, well, actually I, what I started out to do when I wrote my first book, I wanted to write a story of redemption. Um, and I, you know, you Google how to be a writer and it says, write what you know. Uh, and I was a special forces counterterrorist guy. And so that's what Pike became, but, uh, I didn't set out to write, you know, Jason Bourne military thriller. I set out to write a story of redemption. Um, if I'd have been a police officer, Pike would have been a cop. If I'd have been a priest, Jennifer would have been a nun. I was a special forces guy. So that's what he became. Wow. Um, one thing that always fascinates me uh, with your books in particular, and, and there's a couple of other authors who um, will tend to write things that are very, um, how do I say this, um, timely feeling without completely dating themselves, um, if that makes any sense. Like, like uh, in The Devil's Ransom, we open up in Afghanistan. And anyone who is paying attention to the news and world events over the last couple of years, um, you know, there was a lot that happened in Afghanistan, yeah. you know, and, and we'll leave commentary, you know, aside, but a lot of stuff happened. Um, my, th this is maybe a, a multi-pronged question, but one, uh, is it ever a temptation to write specifically about something that's going on in the world? Or are you of the mind um, that that's too timely and maybe too raw and, and I want to avoid it. Uh, did, did you ever wrestle with those types of, you know, well, when I did developing for, a plot for this very book. I did. Uh, I got a lot of emails asking if I was going to discuss Afghanistan and I said, no, no way. Like, I no, mean, no. It's, <laughs> it's, it is raw. It's raw for me. It's raw for a lot of veterans who served yeah. over there. I was like, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. Right. Uh, and and then, but I did follow exactly what was going on over there because I had friends who were doing it. Uh, and I had friends that were over there doing the evacuation. Um, and I had uh, um, I ran across a story about the Bactrian treasure, which is a real thing. Uh, and it's it's this treasure that was found by a Soviet archaeologist way back in the uh, late 70s. They don't even know who was in the tomb. They found this tomb. They don't, don't they know he's rich, but they don't know who he is. And in there was uh, uh, this vast gold treasure, emeralds from all over the Silk Road. So they had like daggers from Serbia and emeralds from China and stuff from Greece and all this stuff. And uh, it became kind of a point of pride for the Afghan people. And they had it in the, in the palace. And um, then the Soviets invaded. And then in 1989, the Soviets left. The treasure disappeared. And everybody just kind of assumed the Soviets stole it. Said, we're leaving Afghanistan. Pack that treasure up. Let's get out of here. 
Well, fast forward 2001, we topple the Taliban and um, the about 2002 ish, a guy comes out of woodwork and he's like the key master for the like, Ghostbusters key master. He's got this key. He says, I need to show you guys something. And he goes out underneath the main bank vault in Kabul and opens a vault. And there's the Bactrian treasure. He had hidden it years ago and never told a soul in the Taliban because he was afraid they were going to destroy it like wow. they did the Buddhist temples and that kind of stuff. He didn't tell anybody what he'd done with it. And then he gave it back to us. And uh, it went on tour, went to China, went to Paris, went to San Francisco, New York. It's like a little King Tut tour. Here's the Bactrian treasure. National Geographic was talking about it. Well, then fast forward to our uh, um, evacuation from Afghanistan and the, the Taliban, it's disappeared again. The treasure's gone and the Taliban's talking about lopping somebody's head off. And that picked my interest enough. That I said, yeah, I can actually use that in a story. Wow. So when, when you're, how do you decide what things are, are too timely and are changing too quickly to, you know, like, like some things um, you may develop a plot point, but then as it plays out in the news, it's a, completely different scenario how, how do you avoid kind of being um pinned down um by the the timeliness of something so that you're so that someone could pick up a pike logan book 10 years from now and get the same amount of enjoyment without saying oh well that that didn't happen that way that's not the way it ultimately uh turned out yeah i i i don't ever try to avoid it i mean and it's happened yeah. to me over and over again uh, it's always a risk because when you write about current events, a problem is they're current. Right. <laughs> you know, something could go wrong. For instance, I, I was doing two books a year for a while there. And um, the my by the time I'd finished one book, I mean, I'd hit the end and my editor would say, okay, I need the title, jacket copy, you know, of the, your next book. What is it? What's the plot? And uh, turn around, <laughs> it was so tight, I didn't have anything. And, and, and back wow. then, I, I, I was still doing a lot of security work, still doing uh, security contracting and uh, – asymmetric threats and that kind of stuff. And I said, Hey, I got this. Um, there's a little known group called Islamic Islamic state. Uh, they're getting a bunch of foreign fighters and it's actually a pretty big threat factor. Uh, I, I, what I like to do is do that. I'm going to put some Americans inside the Islamic state and it becomes a threat to America because they've got blue passports. He says, okay, go for it. Well, halfway through writing that book, the Islamic state became ISIS and took over all of Syria, the size of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh no, we're going to wipe them out now. <laughs> that would be the end of my book. I mean, it'd be good if we did wipe them out, but bad for my publishing stuff. It'll completely right. destroy my book. Um, and we didn't obviously. And so it worked out. And, and then it looked like I was prescient because nobody yeah. had even had written about ISIS at all. Um, until, uh, I mean, my book came out right after when they were front page headline and everybody was like, how'd you know? How'd you know? Was, truthfully? I mean, th there's things that are out there that, uh, um, they just don't make American news. It's when it makes American news, everybody assumes that, wow, it's, you know, it just happened. But ISIS, Islamic state's been around forever. Right. Right. Um, one thing that you're kind of known for Brad is that you like to, um, gather, um, you, you, you take trips and put boots on the ground, so to speak, to, to gather the, the feel and, and little details that, that wind up in the book. Um, how do you, how do you, in your fact finding missions, how do you decide what uh, details need to make it into the manuscript and where does, um, you know, what, what, what things are you looking for to make the story feel authentic and, and, and to provide reader immersion? 
Yeah, when I uh, this book, we went to Croatia. Uh, I started out in Zagreb and drove all the way down the coast to every small town there was. And I'm not looking for anything. There's, I have a list of things that you know I'll do pre-research and say here's the stuff that I'm going to look for. Uh, yeah. as just a set, but it's only, it's, that's like 50%. And then 50% is looking for me and I don't even know it exists. And I don't have a list of, you know, I need to look at this, this, and this. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know what I don't know. So when I hit the right. town, um, and start walking around, you start talking to locals, you get a feel for the, how the locals work. I mean, even things as simple as, uh, um, mass transit, you know, if it, is it like Japan where everybody fights like cats and dogs to get into the subway or is it like right. Germany where everybody's more polite? It's all those things are different everywhere you go. Uh, and so things are looking for me that I don't even realize are there. Uh, for instance, in this book, they had, a, um, my next door neighbor in Charleston is actually from Bosnia, Herzegovina. Okay. And so she knows all about Croatia. And she said, Hey, you're going to leave Havar. It's an Island. You're going to leave Havar on the ferry, hit the mainland again. And you're going to be driving down this to Brobnik. You're going to pass right by this place called Molly stone which is, uh, has the best muscles in the known universe. Uh, you got to stop there and eat. So naturally, you know, my wife said, we're going to stop there and eat, take a picture, prove to her right. that we stop there. And as we get there, it turns out that it's, there's two villages. Uh, Molly stone means little stone and there's stone, there's stone and there's little stone and surrounding both of those, uh, little villages from like the 13th century is, uh, the, what they call, and I didn't check this, but it looked true to me, the largest fortification outside of the Great Wall of China. It's this huge wall that went around both villages. And you could pay for, uh, um, you know, you just pay them a little pittance and you can walk all over the walls and, and see what's up there with the castles and wow. things like that. And as soon as I saw that wall between the two villages, I was like, I'm going to use that in the book. Right. I had no idea it existed. I, I knew exactly how I was going to use it. And I, in fact, didn't use it exactly like I thought at that time. But wow. uh, I, I didn't know it existed. I just, you know, I stumbled on it. Yeah. Are, are you a, a detailed outliner um, before you start writing the first draft of the book? Do you do you have a plan that you're working from? No, I, I, well, I do have a plan. I, I have what I call a framework where okay. I understand the threat vector. I understand the players. I understand the uh, terrain I'm going to be using. Um, but I don't understand. I, I don't know the tactical nitty gritty of who's going to do what to win where. Well, the, the reason I asked that is because the, hearing you talk about your your in-person research, how much of that starts affecting your plan for the book? Or do you go into your research kind of thinking, OK, this is this is what I think the story, where it's going and and who the antagonist is and, you know, and that sort of thing. And then how much of that changes when you start getting the lay of the land and, and start picking up the the little pieces that are significant that you that, that finds you, as you say? Well, generally, I don't, uh, uh, haven't really doing, started doing some in-depth writing before I do the research trip. I mean, I'm working on book 18 right now, and I did the research trip in September. Okay. Um, but I don't, uh, um, it doesn't change anything in the sense there's certain things you're always going to need. There's always going to be something that I'm going to need. And if I see that, you know, I see some, a piece of terrain that fits it, I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take that. Uh, there's always, you, you, there's just unique things that, uh, you, uh, I, I'll use the book because people, when they read a book, uh, when I first started writing, I, I was doing tradecraft like, uh, like you'd really do it. So if you, you, right. if you had a safe house, it'd be a safe house. It was just nondescript in the middle of a, a, a neighborhood without anything standing out. Well, that's boring. So, right. <laughs> you know, then I started, I realized one book in particular I wrote and I had a couple of scenes in there from, uh, Egypt. It was all necessary force. And, uh, um, 
people will email me and say, oh, I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so then I realized, okay, you got to start putting in some places where people are reading and can say, oh, I've been there. I know what he's talking about right there. Uh, and so like this, the Cliss Fortress I used, the Mally Stone I used, uh, Marco Polo's house on Corchula, um, Split, Diocletian's Palace, the, the cellars underneath Split. Um, and it makes it a little bit harder to, you got to figure out, okay, why would they, why are they going into this one specific spot? Right. Uh, and so you've got to delineate that, but it's better than saying, you, you know, you went to a, a house up in the hills all by itself and nobody knew about it. It's right. nobody, it would work for the story, but it, people get better, a bigger kick out of, uh, if they've been there, they like saying, I've been, I've been to that place. <laughs> um, technology plays an interesting role in the plot of this book. Um, surveillance and, uh, the, the idea of ransomware, uh, specifically, yeah. um, what, where did that, where did that idea come from? Was there like a, a specific thing that, that yeah. caught your imagination? Yeah. So I, I still get news feeds from all over the world, um, various newspapers and, and uh, hacker news and things like that. There's all kinds yeah. of different feeds you can get. And I saw a story about uh, a company in Israel called uh, NRO, which had developed a, a malware package that it was selling to nation states, supposedly just the good guys. Uh, and it's called Pegasus. And uh, the unique thing about Pegasus is it was it's what's known as zero click. So most of the time you get malware on your computer or on your phone, it's they do it through social engineering. They get you to click on something that you shouldn't have. So your phone, you'll get a text that says FedEx package is out for delivery. Uh, if you didn't order from FedEx, click this link here. And if you're dumb enough to click that link, then you're, now your phone's infected. If right. you get an email that says somebody tried to change your Google password, if you didn't try to change your Google password, click here. That's not, I mean, that's what got John Podesta. That's how he got all his emails hacked right. through Russia. But zero click, they didn't need to do that. And what it would do was turn in any uh, Android or iPhone into a complete surveillance device. It, they can read the text. Uh, they can turn the camera on, turn the mic on, um, geolocate you, listen to your phone calls, obviously, uh, look at everything you're surfing on the web. So it basically turns it into a giant surveillance device. And uh, they sold it to UAE, United Arab Emirates, which is a, an ally. And UAE stood up what they called Project Raven, which was manned by ex American intelligence guys from our own NSA had retired. Now we're working for them to create their version of the NSA. And they started targeting uh, dissidents and journalists and American citizens. And I read that story. I was like, that is wild. That's a good story. Uh, so I made a ton of research on it. And as I was doing the research on that, I ran into the ransomware problem, which is much, much bigger, hugely, incredibly bad. I mean, ransomware is everywhere. Most people don't um, know how bad it is because nobody reports it. Only about 20% of the people report that they've been hit with ransomware because it's embarrassing. It's it embarrassing, you, yeah. It could cause you to lose uh, um, business. So if you're a bank right. and you get hit with ransomware because one of your employees is stupid enough to click on a link, you don't want, you tell everybody, hey, come on, bring your money to my bank. It's really secure, except we got hit by some Russians yesterday. Right. So nobody really reports it. Um, the Colonial Pipeline was reported because that's a commercial infrastructure thing, causing gas prices to rise. Uh, the meatpacking industry got knocked out on two continents. They took out company uh, country at Costa Rica for three days. And just last week or two weeks ago, the um, British Postal Service got hit. They couldn't mail any packages. Um, and it, so it's a, a huge, enormous problem. And I thought, you know, if, they, if somebody invented, uh, uh, was able to get past the systems and create a zero-click ransomware set, like the Pegasus set, instead of social engineering, then we'd really be in trouble. And so that's right. what started the kind of the threat vector I was working with. It, 
it's really interesting, Brad, because uh, in in my experience, uh, when you start thinking about a story, rarely does it come to you as um, kind of this fully formed idea with a protagonist and then uh, a problem for the protagonist. And, and it, it rarely kind of lays out like that, but you'll you'll read a news article that deals with this and then you'll see uh, you'll have a conversation with someone that revolves around this. And then somewhere in your mind that you, you start kind of putting the pieces together. Um, it, it sounds like you do a lot of research and, and have a lot of information coming in and you kind of file those things away. Oh, this would be interesting, you know, one yeah. day for this or how does, when, when the book process begins for you, how do you start taking these disparate, you know, kind of factoids that you've collected and, and they start kind of forming a, a, a story thread? It's uh, uh it, it's exactly what you just said. I'll see something stored. So like I said, I did an enormous amount of research on Pegasus and I didn't get to really use any of that. The Pegasus malware is in the book, but yeah. it's just a small piece and it, and it's in the book just to be used simply as the malware was designed to be used. They're going to track a phone because right. it's got Pegasus on it. So but, all but the research I did for, all the background information helps in spinning that yarn. It may not come out yeah. in the book, but it, it it's kind of the, the buttresses your your expertise in, in the in, yeah, in but the, the whole Project Raven thing. Th those yeah. guys are real. They got arrested. They went to prison. Uh, the American citizens did, and so you know all that was just like, well, not using any of that. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, so you start collecting all of these uh, disparate pieces of information. Do you start, um, you know, uh, you kind of write out your plan? Oh, I can use this that I've collected. I can use this. And like, at what point in the process do you kind of get the lay of the land and say, okay, now I understand what's happening and where this is going? When I do my framework, when I once that framework is done, it's pretty much locked in stone. I've... Uh, um, I would say it was 100% locked in stone. I knew how the book was going to end, uh, except up till uh, No Fortunate Son. Now I say probably 80% of the time I know exactly how it's going to end. But the, the framework itself, the strategic geopolitical stuff, uh, yeah. the threat vector, what I'm going to use, that, that doesn't change again. Uh, at least it hasn't yet. And I hope it never does because I'd be halfway through the book and then obviously I've done something wrong. <laughs> um, how much do you get to kind of push the boundaries of – of technology and uh, military craft and spy craft and, and all of that, you, you, there's a particular boundary that you push in this book um, that I was really excited to see. Um, and I'll just, just say outer space and let you say what oh, you, yeah. what you want to with that. How, how do you, how, how do you decide where to push and, 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 and what things are plausible and, and where that line is that, you know, a believability that you can kind of put a toe over, you know, or is, is the general population ready for this? You know, can I back this up? How do you feel about those types of situations? Yeah, I think most of it for, uh, and I would, I would split that up again to strategic versus tactical. So there's a lot of technology I use that at the tactical level, that is absolutely real. I don't put, it's not in there. If it's in my book, it's, it's being done. Yeah. Um, uh, for instance, I had a, uh, there's a billion ways, you know, basically how you're going to find somebody nowadays through their smartphone. I mean, it's right. just, there's so much, I mean, if you look at the murders that happened in Utah, what they do, they track the smartphone. 
So they've got uh, everybody's got a smartphone and that's what really is giving everybody away. But that gets kind of boring when you do the same stuff. And so I read a story once again. Now, this is when you say you're collecting all these pieces. I'll collect something that just it says that's pretty unique. It does. It's tactical. It has nothing to do with the, the problem itself, but I can use it. So in New York City, when you go, anytime you go into your house, most people, 99% of the people, when you hook up to Wi-Fi, say, when I come into home, home my phone automatically hooks up to the Wi-Fi. Right, right. Very few people turn on the thing that says, ask me every time before you go to Wi-Fi. Yeah. I'll let you know if I want you to go on Wi-Fi. So once you have uh, the password to a, a net, uh, every time you enter that, that net's uh, Wi-Fi realm, it's going to hook up. Well, these people realize that, and so they uh, uh, spoofed a Starbucks uh, server, and they hovered it, put it in a drone, and hovered it a block away from the Starbucks in New York City. So everybody coming out of the Starbucks, when they got to the street and the red light was there, out of the 30 people trying to cross the street, maybe 10 of them had been in that Starbucks, and all 10 of their phones thought they were back in Starbucks and hooked up to the drone. And once oh, they hooked up to the drone, they drained everything out of it. And I read that, and I was like, well, there's a way to find a phone. So I decided to use that. Another thing wasn't even, I didn't read a story about it. It personally happened to me. Uh, anytime you're doing a building assault, you, you'd really like to know the floor plan. You don't have yeah. to know it. It's, I mean, we used to train for unknown floor plan because that was the worst case scenario. But if you did know the floor plan, it'd be nice to know. You'd like to know sure. that there's yeah. rooms here, here, and here. Um, and I got a Roomba and started running Roomba around the house. Now, the Roomba's got artificial intelligence. And the first time it goes through the house to do the vacuuming, it takes it, you know, six hours because it's bumping into everything. Right. Uh, next time it's less. Next time it's less until by the fifth time, it's got your whole house mapped out. And that house is a floor plan. And that floor plan goes to the cloud. And uh, that's when I quit using the Roomba because now all you have to do is hack that cloud. And I've got the floor plan for your house if you've got a Roomba. And so I ended up using that in a book. It, that wasn't a story I read. I just saw what the Roomba was doing. It was like, Man, if I wanted to hit a house and they have a Roomba, I'd hack that Roomba and figure out what their floor plan is. You know, that's the crazy thing, Brad, is that the things that make life uh, simpler, we we feel like are these gaping security holes in our in our life. You know, the, the more you learn about the vulnerabilities and the 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 holes that we're leaving in our life, um, the more it just makes you want to go live in a cabin in the mountains, you know? Yeah. So I've used, <laughs> I've used Alexas before cause you can hack them, right. turn them into listening devices. Um, they actually had a, there was actually a court case where a guy murdered his wife and um, they think the Roomba heard it. And so they right. got a, they got a, a subpoena to get all the, the uh, not Roomba, get, they think Alexa heard it. Right. So they got a subpoena to get all the data from that Alexa. And sure enough, the recording of him murdering his wife was on the Alexa. Oh, wow. 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 Um, Brad, with a, with a character like Pike Logan, who is a long running character um, in, in a series of books that are so edge of your seat, um, you know, the stakes are, are extremely high. Um, how do you maintain that level of vulnerability for a character and uh, keep, your reading audience invested in a character um, when we kind of expect that we're going to see Pike again next year, you know, like, like I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure in the Pike Logan series, you're not going to kill Pike. Um, so what so sure. other, well, that you know, <laughs> we don't know that, but you know, we hope that um, 
what other ways have you learned as a writer to to keep me as a reader invested and to keep me worrying about Pike for for lack of a better term enough to keep coming back to visit him? Yeah, I think it's for me. I have a whole team there, so yeah. it's Pike, Jennifer, Veep, Knuckles, Brett. There's a whole bunch of people. Aaron Shoshana, um, and uh, combat is unforgiving. I mean, there's you could be the best command on earth and you're going to bleed just like anybody else. Um, and so I've had some guy, I wish I, after I did it, I really wished I hadn't, uh, I've had characters die. Um, and I, they weren't the, uh, red shirted star Trek Lieutenant who shows up on one episode and he's the one that's going to, as soon as you see him, you're like, he's dead. Right. Right. No, this guy had been in multiple books. Uh, and it, it was decoy and I had, uh, uh, spent a lot of time developing him and it worked really well, really well for that book. But I, afterwards I was really wished I hadn't done it. Somebody, uh, well, it's kind of a spoiler. Somebody's going to, somebody gets hurt in this book. How about that? <laughs> Love it. Well, this book is the devil's ransom. It is available everywhere now. Um, Brad, I love this book. Uh, I, I look forward to a new Pike Logan book every year. Um, if folks are just discovering you and, and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, uh, where can they find out more about this series and this character or these characters and where can they find out more about you? Uh, they can go to my website at, uh, bradtaylorbooks.com. Uh, and actually that's a good segue. So yes, I have excerpts of all of my books. So you can get a you can get a, a flavor for any book, including Devil's Ransom. Uh, his first few chapters are on there, so you can see what the writing's like. But that's also where I have a national security blog, and uh, it's also where all the other books are. Excellent. And we'll link that up in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. The Devil's Ransom, available everywhere now. Brad, thank you uh, for joining me again and for talking about the new book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's fun. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.